Welcome to the Shift Happens podcast, where we explore the latest trends and insights in the digital workplace. From the role of AI in the workplace to the future of remote work, we cover it all. Tune in as we chat with industry leaders and experts. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just getting started in the digital landscape, we've got you covered. Subscribe to Shift Happens wherever you listen to podcasts and stay ahead of the curve. In this episode, we're here again to talk about how people are the center of transformation. Clarice gives a frank depiction of the challenges of working in government, but she also busts a few myths about the pace of work as well. We talk about her work in the transition from paper to electronic forms in the VA, but also in a wide range of topics such as the need to expand the concept of civic lead and how government innovation starts with recruiting innovators. Shift Happens Podcast. The way that the services were administered are almost entirely in paper and in forms. And so when I joined the VA, the CTO, Charles Worthington, who was a uh, former PIF himself and helped start the U.S. Digital Service, he said to me, Clarice, you know, now is the time where there's a real opportunity to modernize um, this notifications and, and how we actually correspond with veterans. Welcome back, Shift Happens family. I'm your host, Dux Raymond Sai, Chief Brand Officer of AppPoint, Modern Workplace Professional, Microsoft MVP, and Regional Director. I'm very excited today to be joined by Clarice Chan, Product Manager and former Presidential Innovation Fellow, detailed to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Clarice, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story today. Thanks for having me on the show, Ducks. You know, this is the first time I'm talking to somebody with the title Presidential Innovation Fellow. But before we talk about that, why don't you share your story and your journey and how you started and uh, how you ended up to what you're doing today? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. I think with every story, you know, it sort of starts with your roots, where you're from, what motivates you, you know, why it is you do what you do. And for me, a lot of this really cultivated in my upbringing in Hong Kong. And so I, you know, I spent almost the most of, if not all, actually, of my formative schooling in Hong Kong. And, you know, growing up in a dynamic international city like Hong Kong, I was just inspired at, you know, the growth of innovation, the impact that design has on your daily lives. Um, but also just what it means to sort of design a modern society. How do you transport millions of people every day? Um, how do you set people up with the right incentives and, and almost the right social patterns to really thrive and live harmoniously? And that thread um, and that culture really is what has guided my career and my life the entire time. And so I started off pursuing design. And then as I got more and more technical in my design, I realized just the power of technology itself, not just enabling the stories we tell, but literally enabling the tools and you know the capability of people and humanity. And so I became a technologist, joined Microsoft as a product manager, was there for a number of years, um, and then found my path to government. And so you know I think that really was honing in my crafts and skills, and then really finding, you know, where and what my calling is and what it is I felt like I was here to do. And so that's how my genesis of growing up in Hong Kong, having these values of society and scale, um, really then translated to wanting to serve as a presidential innovation fellow. 
for for our friends who's never been to Hong Kong, and I echo 100% what Clarice talked about, how the city is so vibrant. And talk about design. You have one of the best subway systems, the MTR, out there, right? And I'm just so impressed that it's been there forever, but yet how efficient it is and how modern it is when I was there a few years ago. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the MTR is an inspiration for a lot of cities um, in particular, because when you think about service design and service delivery, and I'm sure we'll get about that a little bit when I start talking about the VA, but, you know, with your Metro card, you can walk into any store and, and pay for things. So it's really not just, you know, a public transportation infrastructure, but it actually becomes the actual financial system in which, you know, people and consumers um, purchase and and sort of interact with society. And that ends up being, um, you know, a huge almost responsibility or catalyst of the way that government um, can actually create really powerful and smooth and efficient systems uh, in any city or any society. So that continues to be a great inspiration for what I hope to sort of bring to service design in the U- U.S. And, and we thought Apple Pay was so forward-looking, right? This MetroCard mode of really using the pay has been around for a long time. Now, talking about government, let's uh, let's talk about your journey to the government and uh, your transition from Microsoft to the government. What caught your attention with this program, the Presidential Innovation Fellows? And perhaps you can tell everybody what this is, how you can involve if folks want to get involved. Yeah, there there are a couple pieces there, Ducks, in that question. I think the first piece, um, sort of connecting the origin story and finding my path there, um, I had always, you know, taken a liking to government and politics and what it would mean to sort of serve your country um, and to pay it forward. But when you look at government and the political landscape, you know, you think to yourself, unless I'm trying to be a lawyer or a politician, I'm not sure that there's a place for me in government. Um, and a lot of people think that they say, well, you know, I can't, I I don't know what I would do even if I want to join government. And so I had that thought for a long time where, you know, unless I was dropping everything and getting a JD or doing the bare minimum of helping folks, you know, register for voter registration somewhere in between, um, I was hoping to sort of find what my place and what my role could be in government. And that's when I learned about the presidential innovation fellows. So speaking to the program a little bit. Back in the day, in 2012-2013 era, um, during the Obama administration, you know, you might remember one of the biggest um, sort of public debacles was the rollout of healthcare.gov. And in the birth of that, um, you know, these sort of digital SWAT teams, if you will, were created, the Presidential Innovation Fellows um, being the first. And then from there, you know, a fellow helped create 18F, which is another digital agency, and then the U.S. Digital Service from that. And so you can imagine it was basically this time of, of digital crisis where a lot of these programs got started. And that was when, you know, I first learned about the program, when it became on my radar. Um, and so over the years, you know, I was sort of tracking it and thinking about when my time to serve or, or how might I then find my path to service. So in that sense, when the programs first started getting created, they were on my radar. And, you know, one thing that's really pervasive, uh, you know, in technology is we always talk about, you know, product market fit. And, and you know, more than anyone in, in the brand world, that's super important. And at Microsoft and, and um, you know, in the, in the PM discipline, we always think about is the product meeting 
the needs of users? Is it going to fit the market? Is there a demand? Are people going to buy it? Um, and so when I thought about product market fit, I almost lens my own you know, personal career in the shape of product market fit. And I think to myself, based on my skills, am I living my own best product market fit? And I think that ended up really igniting this idea that the biggest problems aren't the most technical. And I personally felt that, um, you know, myself, my, my ingenuity, my creativity, you know, where are my talents most needed? And that's where I sort of found my way, um, you know, to government and, and really thinking deeply about my own product market fit. So a couple of things there. So first and foremost, this is very, very impressive. But at the point you're at Microsoft. Now, did you have friends and even family members tell you what you want to go to government? Like, think about how much money you can make, especially in the, in, in the tech world, whereas in government, there's no money there. Did that ever <laughs> come up in, in your conversations? It did, sadly. And, you know, that actually is uh, a huge thing that I'm really passionate about fixing in this dialogue. You can imagine um, everyone from mentors to family members. You know, my grandma emigrated to San Francisco in the 70s. And so she said, you know, we didn't come all this way and work this hard just for you to take a pay cut. Um, and, and, you know, I think about that. And, but to the same point, I also think about what it means to ensure the future. And so it's also long-term versus short-term. And so, um, you know, I, I think it goes without saying that we all feel like our government um, is in a little bit of an urgent state of crisis, whether it's technology, whether it's policy, whether it's representation, um, whether it's, you know, all of the social political attention that we're all experiencing, there's, you know, a, a real inflection point that's happening right now. And I felt like that was felt even, um, you know, I, I applied to the PIF program back in 2018. So that was also way before, you know, all of what's happening now, I, I personally felt like it was all um, brewing. And what I realized once I joined was, we need a lot more of this. If you think about um, wanting or needing more innovation in government, then when you get down to brass tacks, it's actually really simple. The, the thing that stewards innovation is people. So you actually need more innovators in government if you want government to be more innovative. And what makes people come? It's opportunity, it's career, it's prestige, it's a lot of things. But um, the sad part is a, you know, the peak of a government civil servant um, may literally make the same salary as a fresh grad at Netflix with one day work experience. And so we have these broken systems, um, you know, that are unintentional consequences of capitalism where no one designed it so that you know, um, you know, the height of one career is the floor of another career. But we need to fix this because we need to change the way that people are incentivized and we need to shift our reward system. And, you know, at Microsoft, there's a famous executive um, in the marketing division that said, hope is not a strategy. And I very much think that we need to adopt that when we think about government. You know, it's, it's great to have people step up out of goodwill and out of passion and service. Um, but hope alone is not a strategy. So we really need to put in the work and roll up our sleeves to figure out how it is we're going to solve these these real problems um, of incentivizing more talent to go into government. And we see the incentives with the right incentives coupled with technology enablement that works because we see models like Singapore 
where government leaders are measured like they're CEOs or managing partners of companies. They have P&Ls that tracks against them. And then they couple that with making the most out of technology to thrive and grow. And in fact, it's beyond that, right? Like Singapore, they, they look at the government as an enterprise where they provide services to other countries as well and make money off of it. And, and that's not impossible. Yeah, Dex, I'm so glad you brought up Singapore. I, I think few people that I talk to have the global lens um, that we do, having you know lived or been raised uh, in other modern cities. And at least to the point of Singapore, the prime minister has the highest paid role. Um, you know, you get millions of dollars. And the reason why they've done that in Singapore is so that your leaders um, aren't sort of uh, privy to corruption. Because if you're actually paid at a high rate, at the highest stature, um, and, and, you know, more than enough to compensate for your leadership, then you're actually not invited, you know, not incentivized to drive any or lead any corruption. And so Singapore is a fantastic model where we see the people side of the incentive structure really lead, um, you know, the, the rest of the leadership and the rest of the alignment of then what fall in place. Yeah, it's all about getting what you pay for. And like you said, government or politicians for that matter, won't be too focused on, oh, how much money do I need to raise to win in the office? But they'll be dead set focused on, I got to get my job done. How do we progress and move forward? Not worrying about getting elected, you know, for the next four years, right? So you land in the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. So I assume if you're, if you get into the PIF program, you get assigned, I guess, to this different agencies. You land a VACTO office, you know, excited, wanting to make a big mark right away. What were some of the early challenges you ran into um, that typically in private sector you don't have to deal with? Hello, Shift Happens podcast listeners. I have an exciting offer for you. Join us for our in-person Shift Happens conference, October 10 to 11 in Washington, D.C., Registration is free. That's right, it's free. And you walk away with actionable strategies from industry leaders and peers to make Shift happen in your digital workplace. Visit shifthappens.to to register today. We'll see you there. That's a great question. I think, you know, speaking candidly, what you would kind of expect, the early challenges are first the uh, what we call like boot time to productivity um, is way slower. Like it could take you up to a month to get a laptop, um, you know, or, or something that ridiculous. I think even when I was trying to get a balsamic license, it took upwards of, you know, two or three months to get it cleared um, from a productivity perspective. So first and foremost, if, if we're talking about day one on the ground challenges, issues in government in terms of getting set up, um, you know, that, that is definitely the death by a thousand paper cuts. But once you're up and running, um, the speed of government is one that I actually want to myth bust because a lot of people say government moves really slow. Um, and that's true in terms of like full rollout or incremental change. But when you're on the ground, actually embedded in the teams, um, it's almost like an airplane phenomenon where when you're on the ground, the airplane looks like it's moving really slow. But in reality, it's like jetting across the sky. And the same goes in government. You know, you watch political TV shows and it really is that. There's a pace and a lot of people are working and grinding and hustling to move agendas, to ship things. Um, and it's actually a very fast-paced environment. So 
outside of, you know, the hiccups of getting your laptop set up, you know, getting your ID and your, and your two-factor off and all of the technology kinks, yes, there are issues in the beginning. Um, but one thing that I want to myth bust in terms of getting up and started is that government's actually um, a, a place for high growth and, and fast moving action. You know, one of the, one of the things too, people don't realize, right? I, I look at it as a snowball effect. Yeah, it may take a little while to get started, get the momentum going, but once it does, it, it, it snowballs. And a lot of innovation, frankly, it came from the U.S. government. Think, you know, the NASA program. Think because of NASA and all these different uh, trips we've gone to space, you know, vacuum cleaners were invented. And some of these research out of the medical industry came out. Uh, ARPANET, right? Without the government, we won't have internet today. <laughs> So people tend to forget that. And we're seeing it again today where, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, you've seen the U.S. government moving at brisk uh, pace now to the cloud and taking advantage of these modern technologies where they would use, where it used to be they would build on their own. So now they're like, no, no, let's use off the shelves. Obviously, let's make sure it's secure, but then let, let's continue moving forward, uh, making the most of all these different technologies. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, you know, when I first joined the VA, the VA was on this huge mission under the CTO's office to consolidate their website. Um, and so just two, three years ago, the VA actually had, you know, m maybe a half a dozen, if not a dozen websites that veterans would have to, you know, save and favorite each one and go to all these different sites. So, you know, analogous to the private sector, imagine if when you were doing your banking, you would have bankofamericachecking.com, bankofamericastudentloans.com, bankofamericamortgage.com, bankofamericasavingsaccount.com. And that was the state of the VA at the time. And so, you know, a part of this first wave of U.S. digital services, uh, presidential innovation fellows, there was a huge overhaul to basically, you know, consolidate one single website, formerly sort of this vets.gov initiative, that is now what we know as va.gov. And so now there's one single front door for services. And that was not the case some number of years ago. And when you look at the journey of that project, it, it almost spans like three years. And so you think, by God, you know, how, how did it take the government three years to build a website? And the truth is, it doesn't take three years to build a website. You, you and I both know it takes you know, three months to six months to build a website, but it is working with the business lines. It is working with regulators. It is working with data and privacy. It's migrating users. There's a lot of other mechanics that go into successfully launching or refactoring and rebooting um, a whole website and the actual standing up of the website isn't isn't the challenge. So when people think, oh, government, you know, doesn't know how to even build a website, um, that's where you know putting yourself in the situation in the front lines has really humbled and honored you know honored me because I was like, wow, there's so much more that people don't see you know in the headlines or that people don't see on the outside. So part of doing things like you know being on your show is I want to you know help people understand. Um, that there's just so much more to learn and, and so much below the iceberg that we don't see. Absolutely. And, and this reminds me of your point earlier around healthcare.gov, right? So as folks may remember, healthcare.gov, when it first came out, it didn't quite work as expected. And the government got a lot of bad rap for it, but there's a lot of behind the scenes nuances. And in fact, 
you talk about Microsoft, I believe Kurt Delbaney was brought in, former Microsoft, now he's back at Microsoft, to help stabilize that. But one question I do have, though, is, you know, it's great. The government, like in your example, the VA consulting in the website, making it simpler, the experience better for the constituents, in this case, our veterans. Do you think that's a result of the demand now with the constituency that we serve? Where, for example, my personal life, I'm so used to Amazon, right? I order something, I can track, I can see when it's coming. Do you think people are expecting or wanting that same experience now with the government versus calling somebody up or filling in 10,000 forms and not knowing what's happening? Or do you think it's just both that's happening? You're absolutely right. I think, you know, when you think about customer service or just service delivery, regardless of what sectors, you know, you're working in or even what field you're in, people expect that level of modern service delivery. And so really what, what the, you know, if you, if for folks that don't, you know, really know what the VA is, or, you know, maybe you weren't a veteran or, or, um, you know, you're, you're not receiving care from the VA. But if you think about it, the VA is basically a healthcare company and a financial banking institution. So if Kaiser Permanente and Bank of America were one company, that's what the VA does. They provide, um, you know, healthcare. So if you get injured or if you have a disability uh, based on your service, you know, the VA provides healthcare. And then also by serving your country, the VA also offers benefits like paying for college or education. And so mechanically, what the VA really is, is, you know, service delivery of healthcare and service delivery of financial services. And so when you think about it that way, there's really should be no customer experience difference between getting a loan from the VA, getting a loan from Bank of America, getting a loan from, you know, any other, um, loan vendor or, or sort of modern banking service. And um, I'm glad that you brought up the forms because that was really the, the principal sort of project that I was personally working on during my time at the VA, um, where, you know, for the last 50, if not longer years, the VA has been operating and delivering service delivery the same way that it has since day one. And that's through paper mail. Uh, you know, any government service, you fill out a form, you know, it gets processed. And then some number of weeks later, you get told whether or not your, your claim was, you know, accepted or rejected. Um, and so when you're anything from the DMV to filling out your IRS forms, your tax forms, uh, the census, all government agencies and all government services were created in a pre-digital era. So the, the way that the services were administered are almost entirely in paper and in forms. And so when I joined the VA, the CTO, Charles Worthington, who was a uh, former PIF himself and helped start the U.S. Digital Service, he said to me, Clarice, you know, now is the time where there's a real opportunity to modernize um, this notifications and, and how we actually correspond with veterans. And so, you know, for the past two years while I've been at the VA, I've been implementing text infrastructure, email infrastructure, something as simple as being able to send confirmation emails when you submit a form online. Those were things that didn't exist and don't exist, you know, prior to a lot of these technologies coming in. You would fill out a form and it's not like the VA, you know, sends you a paper form that says, hey, we received your form. Uh, it just goes into a black hole. But now that we're moving to digital, when you fill out a form online, those are the types of experiences that you expect from an Amazon. Like, hey, Ducks, you're, you know, we received your confirmation. It's shipped for delivery. It's at your door by nine o'clock. 
um, you know, and and you, can track it. and you can track it. You can even see a picture of it sitting on your doorstep in case there's confusion. That's right. And so it's really those touch points that, um, you know, have been innovated and have made progress in the private sector that we're actually trying to get to parity with government services because there's no reason why, um, you know, government services should lag behind. And so that's really the mission and the ethos of a lot of the, you know, digital disruption that we're doing is we believe government services should not only meet your expectations, but should push the boundaries of what excellence in scaled service delivery should look like. And I think that's a great value for individuals like you coming from the private tech sector specifically that you can bring into government. Or you mentioned that your CTO, right, where he has previous experience in the private sector, because especially today, it's so exciting because we have all these technologies available that typically in the past we're not able to do, or it takes a lot of money or it takes a lot of time. And I'm sure a lot of folks in the government hate to say this, would still have that mindset, right? You bring up some phenomenal idea. Oh, look, look at this Amazon. They can do this. Oh, we don't have money. We don't have time. We don't have experts, right? Because their mind is still stuck on, oh, we got to hire, you know, all these government contractors, butts in seats, code it, takes forever, maintain it, millions and millions of toxic taxpayers' money. That mindset permeates still throughout in various agency. And to what you described, it's the people, right? How, how do you make shift happen <laughs> in their heads that, this can be done today and you can do it iteratively. It doesn't have to be perfect. We can ship in weeks, not three years, right? So how did you get that mindset going or was it difficult to get the right leadership and buy-in? Yeah, it's, it's great. And, you know, this podcast is really about making that shift. Shift happens. And I think when we first come in, there's an inclination to think, I'm a technologist, I'm a product manager, I'm here to innovate. Innovation means solutions and, and building things and shipping things. But really, the path to innovation and shipping things and building things um, is more about the process of innovation than the solutions of innovation. And so the shift that is happening is actually, you know, we coming from the private sector get embedded into these digital agencies and we're talking about agile design, human-centered development, data-centered decision-making, putting your customers first, customer obsession. These are all buzzwords and, and platitudes that we use and overuse in our companies and in the private sector. Um, but these are not practices that are embraced by government. So the shift is not, hey, we need to migrate to the cloud and we need to start doing this. The shift is just, you know, what would it look like to ask our customers what they need and want. Um, what would it look like to do user research and test our solutions with veterans before we actually roll it out to 22 million people? And those are the things that you know, we've tried and tested and you know, create a methodology around in the private sector. Um, and, and those are the things that you know, when I was a product manager at Microsoft, uh, my first team that I was on was the Microsoft Edge browser team. And I joined the team at a time where I was on the first you know, PM bench of when Microsoft decided to not you know, to discontinue IE and that they were going to build a new browser. And that was an extremely um, you know, high growth product experience team to be on because you just have such a wealth of appreciation for what it actually takes to build the only application that arguably everyone in the world needs to use. Um, the browser is arguably 
not only the most used by time and by invocation um, on a PC or on a computer, but the browser is literally the only thing that whether you're a kid, um, an elder, you know, with uh, accessibility needs, um, you know, hard of hearing or, or um, even right to left languages or localization, building a product like the browser taught me what it meant to build um, for inclusion. What does it mean to build something that everyone can actually use? And so carrying that to the government, you know, you can't, you almost can't isolate it. Um, and you quickly learn, like, wow, we need to bring inclusive design into government. How do we, you know, teach this shift in this culture of, hey, we're actually not trying to build something to the number of people we're already serving. What would it look like to build services um, where the veterans that aren't receiving this benefit are now suddenly like able to or have the means or have the access or have the awareness or the education to. And so bringing these practices of innovation, um, you know, human-centered design, data-driven, but first and foremost, sort of this ethos of inclusion um, to customers, is, is that, that is the shift um, in government services. And we're seeing in the social political climate, that big topic is really around um, you know, government has left people out traditionally. And so to change that conversation, it really starts with the conversation around then what does it mean for government, you know, to not leave people out? How do we lead with inclusive design? So can you provide some guidance and advice, especially for listeners who may be in government today that who wants to hack the status quo per se? So what are some key steps that uh, you tried that worked? And, um, you know, I can think of some of the frameworks you described, like one of the focus areas, I think it's critical, especially for governance, they want to get some of these um, implemented is, for example, jobs to be done framework, right? Where it's very focused on delivery, shipping, whereas in the past, it's always people get stuck on this waterfall model idea, analysis paralysis. So can you share some very specific examples or or steps people can take? Yeah, I think. You know, if you think traditionally about government, waterfall um, is basically the way that government does and designs all of their work. You have a set of requirements, you do planning. Even when I was at the VA, there are, you know, digital projects that are underway where their time horizon for completion is 10 years. And I can say with confidence that there is no project happening at startups or in these big tech companies um, where someone has actually both budgeted and roadmapped realistically within a 10-year time horizon, possibly. Well, real quick, I guess the VA has a luxury of saying, we'll still be here over 10 years, whereas startups, I don't know who'll be here on next year. Yeah, but even at these big established companies, you know, at Microsoft, I would say realistically, you know, a meaningful time horizon. They, they definitely set, you know, a decade-long goals um, and things like, you know, carbon offset. But when you're really talking about technology, um, and being able to pivot to markets, you know, COVID already was a wake-up call where, yeah, we, we have to play by ear. We have to dynamically snap to the needs and times of the situation. And I'm sure, you know, prior to COVID, the plans that we had for the next three years completely changed in terms of investment, in terms of focus area. Um, so, you know, your question was really around what are the things to help people sort of be successful in government. And I think the first switch is the focal point, not just being about the finish line, the focal point, not just being about the technology or even agile, um, you know, uh, getting overly worked up about implementing a Kanban board or or triage process. 
The first step is actually focusing on the people. What I realized was there are people that know far more about the government than I will ever, and they've come before me. And when, in, when I leave, there will be people who are here after me. And so when you think about the government as really a product of people who are upholding a system, the time that you spend working with people, training them, teaching them what it means to build, you know, or to innovate with empathy, those are hard skills and, and you know, things with vernacular or understanding or approaches that are extremely long lasting beyond, you know, any of the actual solutions or buttons or, or websites that we ship. Um, so the first mindset shift is everyone's focused on the deliverable, getting something to the finish line, having something, you know, to be able to talk about in the press, like we launched this big new healthcare website, what have you. But really underneath it all, um, for folks to truly be, you know, long lasting and, and to make the impact, I think having that paradigm shift to the work is actually the people, um, that ultimately will, you know, will transcend your time. Um, and will ultimately create, you know, a much more lasting uh, impact in government services and beyond. Awesome. And, and we're seeing that, too. In the private sector, uh, we see a lot, again, Microsoft leading this message around empathy, around inclusivity, about being purpose-driven. And when Satya took over, when he started going down this path, obviously people were looking at like, what are you talking about, right? You're a tech company. Why all this kumbaya feel good? But you're right. At the end of the day, it's all about people. And we're seeing it today in the last six, seven months. Sure, technology has helped us weather through this turbulent time. But because of technology, there's things that we can have done. Delivering food, telemedicine, and having all this data to hopefully forecast and prevent another massive second or third wave, right? So at the end of the day, it's, the focus should be around people. I'm glad you brought up Satya and, and, you know, this customer obsession, but also this growth mindset, because one thing that I think a lot of people underestimate is, you know, when we talk about leadership change and shift happening, mindset happening, um, the actual like working body of Microsoft was, you know, little to no change between the Balmer era and the Satya era, and, and prior to that, you know, the Gates era, and, and really the start of the company. And so when you think about leaders who change, it's not like the company completely changed its 100,000-person workforce. Executives change, but 80%, if not more, of the company um, were the same people. And so it speaks to the power of, with a leadership change and with changing guidance, it can have a profound effect, but also remembering that the bulk of the mission and the output um, actually is resilient, you know, through any leadership change. And so the reason why, you know, I bring that up in government is because people always think, hey, government is new administration, influx in, influx out. What a lot of people don't realize is that only 20% of the federal government are actual political appointees or political leadership tied to an administration. 80% of the federal government, you know, when, when the administration changes, your DMV worker isn't, you know, isn't swapping out. And so the actual federal government workforce, 80% are career employees. And they, you know, they have been there spanning two or three or four um, administrations even um, at its height. And when you really look at the people that have served for like 30 years, 
um, in government. I've met some incredible people uh, who have been committed to these agencies, been committed to citizens, you know, far beyond any administration change. And I think that's the type of understanding and commitment that most people don't realize is that they think serving in government is inherently political, but especially in technology and especially in innovation, um, you know, we're apolitical. No matter who's in office, who's standing at the podium, veterans need services. People need health care. Um, we need to file our taxes. And so, you know, that really is the higher calling for technologists to step in to serve people, um, by the people, for the people, and design with people. And so that's something that I would love to see, um, you know, a greater self-ownership and responsibility from my peers across the tech aisle to really lean in on. Yeah, I love your analogy of having Microsoft as this big engine and then comparing it with government and even other large organizations. And what's really refreshing, if you if you think about that mantra that Satya started with and still pushing, growth mindset, that's not rocket science or it's nothing new. In fact, it came out of, uh, I believe her name's Carol Dweck, with this study around how can you make kids resilient and, and have grit, right? Uh, another book I just read was about grit. Um, uh, what's her name? I forgot her name, but it's it's a great book. Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth, because I have two kids, and, and that's one. Of, there you go. That's one of the things that uh, you know I, I want to instill in my kids. But going back to this point, in it, we're all responsible. We're not saying just that. Oh, let the leaders take care of it, and we'll just follow along. I mean, sure, there's these massive big directives, but all of us can do something about it. So, speaking about technologists. What um, advice or encouragement would you give to a lot of private organizations there in being able to support and bridge this need in the government of innovation and betting, better serving our, our fellow Americans through technology? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Dax, I think we've, we've sort of come full circle in this conversation because in talking, you know, about closing the innovation gap in government, um, you know, I mentioned that the path to that is closing the gap on talent. How do we encourage more innovation in government? Simply, we need more innovators. And where are our best innovators? They're in the private sector. They're in tech companies. They're at startups. And so, you know, what would encourage folks to then leave those jobs to serve when coming back to the conversation, you know, benefits, total comp, incentives um, don't align? And that's where companies and corporations actually have the power and responsibility to build the social infrastructure to actually enable that transfer. Um, and what that comes in the form of is really new and progressive thought around, you know, what would expansion of civic leave policies look like? Um, few people know, you mentioned Kurtel Benny uh, leaving Microsoft to serve at Microsoft. When uh, or to serve in government, um, when healthcare.gov broke, when Kurt came back to Microsoft, um, he was actually the executive that sponsored a program called Civic Leave. And based on his experience, he said, you know, how do we make this easier um, for employees in a time of need, in crisis, to actually serve our government, but still come back to the company or hold their seat at the company? And so Civic Leave, sponsored um, by Kurt, was a program that got created. Um, a number of presidential innovation fellows were able to take advantage of it early on. And when it came from my time, I also took, you know, an 18-month sabbatical from Microsoft 
um, to be able to do my stint as a presidential innovation fellow. And it in itself is if employees and if talent are willing and wanting to serve, I think it is the responsibility, the, you know, the civic um, as well as sort of like national responsibility of corporate companies in the U.S. to make that easier. You know, government can't offer these huge bonuses or stocks or RSUs. And so if employees are ready to lean in and serve, I think it's the responsibility of leaders and companies to do what they can do to support and to facilitate um, this exchange. And so my dream, one of the things that I've been working on as part of my 20% project um, while being a presidential innovation fellow is actually expanding civic leave companies, uh, civic leave leaves with companies. And my dream is that, you know, at these uh, companies or tech companies, one day civic leave sabbaticals are going to be as prevalent or as um, well understood as, you know, parental leave policies. When we think about, you know, why, why should we, you know, pay someone unpaid or why should we even honor a, you know, leave policy like that? Why wouldn't they just, you know, take a leave and then come back or reapply to a job? And, you know, there's, there's so much thought and work and research that has gone into these things. And I think we're just at the very, very beginning of the thinking around what civic leave sabbaticals look like. And so that's really the thread in the story where, you know, in the next decade, two decades, if we're really serious about, you know, fixing technology in government and innovating in government, we can't do that one engineer, 20 engineers, 40 unicorn engineers at a time. We need mechanisms, you know, to bring in the next 10,000, the next 100,000. People forget that government is a three million person workforce. We talk about the size of Microsoft and the number of technologies, we, the technologists we have there. Government is a three million person workforce. One in a hundred Americans work for the federal government. And so thinking about, you know, how do we not just bring a hundred of these technologists into government? Um, that lever could be achieved with, you know, policies like civic leave. So that's where really pushing the thought leadership in the tech space and across aisles is something that I'm really passionate about. I mean, there's, there's already a precedence to this that's proven that it works. If you look at education, uh, there's programs where I believe right after you finish school, you can go serve and teach in public schools. And uh, in healthcare too, USAID has a program for medical workers or health professionals to serve in the government as well in a similar fashion, right? So no question, this should be the next revolution, if you may, for uh, especially in tech. And we can see the broader benefits, not just immediately, but definitely long-term. So so what's the next challenge or shift you're looking forward to tackling, Clarice? That's a good question, Dax. I think, um, you know, this year in particular, 2020 has sent no shortage of problems our way. Um, but I think top of mind as someone living in D.C. is, of course, the upcoming election. And being a technologist, you know, a lot of us have been following um, just unintended consequences, the power of AI, the the force uh, and changes that have been brought by by technology. So, in my next role, um, you know, now that I've finished my fellowship, um, I'll actually be joining Facebook on their Elections Research Commission. And the idea there is, we know that a shift needs to happen in the social media landscape, whether it's regulation or something. Um, but the truth is, today, 
um, we actually don't know how or what exactly the shift needs to be. Um, we have an inkling and we, we know that there are certain things that are impacting everything from mental health to elections. Um, but instead of just shooting from the hip, we really need to understand what's happening, how is it happening, why is it happening, um, and then how do we actually change it? So, you know, without going too deeply into it, principally the role is around research and is around, you know, how do we start the conversation from a foundation of data, understanding, and truth um, so that we can make better informed decisions as regulators, as technologists, as future builders of these of these products and services that'll impact society. Wow. We, I could go on and on and keep talking with you, Clarice, but thank you. Thank you so much for um, spending time with us and really unpacking the landscape of what we can do really as technologists and contribute to uh, our society. How can people connect with you? And if people want to learn more about what you do, where can they best uh, uh, track you down? Yeah, I haven't been much of a Twitter tweeter in the past, but I'm slowly like really starting to amp up there. Um, I encourage people to obviously follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I'll be publishing more on Medium. So I think those two are, are great places for folks to see more of this thought, um, you know, really come through. So happy to connect. And I think, you know, in a, in a great sense, having more people talk about the civic move, the civic tech movement. Um, you know, inspiration is the greatest placebo and we just need more people, um, passionate, learning, understanding, you know, what really are the steps that they can take? And there are so many, um, but the first is always just taking one. Absolutely. With that, Clarice, thank you so much for your time. And again, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, make sure you subscribe and tell all your friends and family about it. Until the next time, wash your hands, wear your mask and be safe. Shift Happens Podcast. If this episode inspired just one of you listening to consider dedicating your talents to help our country's government for even a short period of time, go to usoftech.org. That's U-S-O-F-T-E-C-H dot org to learn about upcoming opportunities at the intersection of tech and government. It's inspiring and humbling to hear Clarice talk about serving her country. I feel like I got a very straightforward picture of the inner workings of the government machine and it didn't always match with popular conceptions. Perhaps the biggest lessons I'll take away from this episode is first, find your product market fit in your career. But I also was reminded the importance of making sure you onboard and equip your people quickly. Don't plan technology projects with long time horizons. Focus on people and systems to make your innovation sustainable and the value of establishing civic leave policies. Shift Happens Podcast is a production of AppPoint, Inc., produced and edited by the AppPoint brand team. Stay up to date on the latest trends in digital workplace transformation by visiting AppPoint.com.